Hey there, Light Pollution News listeners. It's Bill, and I have a couple of quick things I want to pass along to you before the show begins. First, we've added a new texting feature to the show. If you have any questions, thoughts, comments that you'd like to make and be interested in having read on a future show, please check out the new Text Us button on the episode page from whatever podcast player that you are using. Second, we're going to try something new for our June recording. Now, I'm not 100% sure on how this will work yet, but I will be offering current paid subscribers a chance to watch a live feed, perhaps add commentary and questions during the show. I will be emailing our paid subscribers this month with the invites. If you are a paid subscriber, thank you, and definitely be on the lookout. I will say one caveat. I'm honestly not sure how this will work yet, so please be patient with me as I navigate through the uh, this new step forward for us here at Light Pollution News. All right, on to the show. Light Pollution News, February 2024, a space for celebration. It's February, we've arrived the second month of the year, and we have a jam-packed show with some great guests. Calling in live from Sydney, Lauren Colley adds a unique cultural view of the night. As well as a man who converted dark sky skeptics to believers in his home Massachusetts town, astronomer Tim Brothers. And a brains behind one of the most talked about recent documentaries in dark skies, Ms. Tara Roberts Zabriskie. We have a lot to go over tonight, including holiday lights mistaken as an alien invasion, to the preferences of light temperatures of Boulder residents. And is the city of Davis, California, simply too dark? All this is some great conversations. You will not want to miss this one. Let's do it. Let's kick off another light pollution news. All right. Hello, you at home. Welcome back to another light pollution news, the show where we discuss all things related to light pollution and the news. I'm your host, Bill McGinney. Very glad you can join us today as well as three really interesting and great guests. As a reminder, you can find a transcript for this show and more over at our website, lightpollutionnews.com. In addition to that, we have some helpful tidbits packaged in a very friendly way for you or your neighbor's consumption. So definitely check that out over in the helpful tips tab for more information. Now, getting back to today, I'm very, very excited about our guests. And it's good to have some fresh energy entering this conversation. Hailing all the way from the other side of the planet, freelance writer, whom I think have really captured the pulse of the cultural resonance of light pollution. Let me welcome Lauren Colley to the show. Lauren, I first came across your name back in October of 2023 when we did a show where you wrote a piece that was picked up by the Los Angeles Review of Books. You described a Simpsons episode whereby the town erected a giant light and had essentially instilled a permanoon in Springfield. I hope we're not headed that direction. Where did the impetus for that piece come from? Thanks very much, first of all, for having me on. Yeah, that piece kind of grew out of some PhD research I'd been doing over the sort of previous four years which is sort of all wrapped up now as of like two days ago, actually. I had my Viva two days two days ago. Congratulations. So, <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, I was kind of researching, I guess, how the sort of conversation around artificial light had changed in sort of wider culture over the course of kind of like the latter half of the 20th century. So I looked at a few kind of different aspects of that, including sort of Earth Hour, which was something that began in Sydney and sort of blue light you know, the kind of discourse around blue light and night modes, and then also the dark sky movement. But again, from sort of like a cultural perspective. So yeah, that's where that piece grew out of. Yeah, that was that was a really enjoyable piece. I really think you captured a lot of the give and take, the tug, 
And as you said, the environmental du jour of the current time. So it was, it was very, very enjoyable to read. And I look forward to reading more of your stuff. So keep up the good work. Thank you. <laughs> also joining us, chiming in from one of the big islands right next to Lauren. I'm very excited to have you, Tara. Tara Roberts Zabriskie. Zabriskie, do I have that right? Yes, that's correct. So I, I want to thank you two for taking the time out because I know down in your neck of the woods, it's what, 8 a.m. and is it 9 a.m. for you, Tara? Yeah, I'm in New Zealand right now and it is 11 a.m. So I'm in the okay. middle of Okay. Yeah. So it's like midday. Yeah. I don't live here, but I'm I'm visiting and yeah. I'm, hey, that that's I'm a, I, I prefer to be I'm, visiting down there. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a big, big adventure right now away from the snow and yeah, exploring yeah. the sunny side of the world. <laughs> well you you released the documentary Defending the Dark. And Defending yes. the Dark received multiple awards, correct? It did. It did. It, it got a couple of awards at some nominations at film festivals. It was picked up by, I don't know, maybe a dozen different film festivals and a couple of those it was awarded. What was the feedback, I guess? I'm curious about the feedback from from just general public on that. From audiences. I know, yeah. I know we had, I had Jared Flesher on over the summer and Jared Flesher released a, a small little video that was done primarily for Princeton. And he walked it all through the state of New Jersey. And he had people that came up and largely environmentalists that watched it. Who was the audience, I guess, for defending it? Yeah, mine, mine was a real mix. So, you know, I submitted it to all these film festivals and, you know, you just get general film level lover, lovers there. And you get people that are interested in documentaries and learning about new things. So some environmentalists, for sure. Some people that are just really love the stars, whether they're amateur astronomers or they just are really excited when they look up at night. And the first showing was in Maine at the Maine International Film Festival. We had about 100 people show up to that showing. And it was a mix of people in the crowd of various different knowledge levels and they all came out of that screening, like inspired to do something, inspired to talk to a neighbor, inspired to make change in their own backyard. So, and and the thing that surprised me about this, which I didn't go into it thinking this, but kids really enjoyed the film. <laughs> so I've had a few audiences where kids have been there and at the end they they were engaged the whole time. So 30, the full, the full show is 35 minutes. The one that screened at film festivals and yeah, kids would, would just be wide eyed the whole time and have comments after, after it about all the things they wanted to do when they got back home, what inspired wow. them. So, so that, that's what really surprised me about the audience, but yeah, I, I did get a, a general and, and even the environmentalist type people who showed up may not have been aware of this particular issue. So that was that was something new that they learned. They were like, well, I know about all these other kinds of pollution, air pollution, water pollution. Didn't know that there was something called light pollution mm -hmm. and that there is something we can do about it. And it's a simple fix if we just all work together. And, and defending the dark for you at home who may not have ever heard of this is it's a 35 minute documentary. The PBS one's 30 minutes. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I cut it down for PBS. It's it's thirty minutes on PBS. It, it uh, for the last year it's been on certain PBS channels across the country, and it's available to view all the time at pbs.org. Yeah, and uh, the film discusses, amongst other things, 
the Penobscot Reservation's interaction with night. It does. Yeah, I was able to interview a a professor of Native American studies at the University of Maine, and he's a Penobscot Nation member, which is one of the four tribes that make up the Wabanaki people in Maine. And he was able to give me a lot of insight into how they relate to the sky historically and the knowledge that was passed down to them from their ancestors. and and how it sort of impacts them in today's world. So, you know, they they have a lot of areas up around the north woods of Maine. And yeah, he just he talks about how the 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 encroachment of, you know, the light is starting to take away their connection to their ancestors because they used to they they, they would tell stories about the night sky. And without being able to see that, those those stories, they kind of lose connection with their culture. Right. And yeah, but the but the story itself really digs into two organizations up in the North Main Woods that both created dark sky places, I don't know, in the last few years. The Katahdin Woods and Waters Dark Sky Sanctuary and also the AMC, I believe it's called the Main Woods. Yeah, I think Dark you're right Sky on that. Park. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll be talking about one of those probably a little later tonight. And uh, Okay, awesome. That that general area. Now, I know you've you've hiked the the full AT, right? Yeah, that's I have, yes. Congratulations on that. That's always an accomplishment. I've met many great cool people who've done it, but that's that's very cool. Life-changing. So It is. <laughs> before we get going, I still got one more guest, Mr. Tim Brothers. How you doing tonight, man? I'm doing all right. How are you today? Good, good, good. So, so how is everything over? You're over at MIT's Wallace Astrophysical Observatory. And for your home, Tim co-founded the Massachusetts chapter of Dark Sky International. And Tim, you were recently awarded a minor planet designation. Yeah, that was that was a really exciting development for me last year. I was greatly honored last year to find out I was nominated for this. It's been a great honor. It's a main belt asteroid beyond the orbit of Mars. And in an early part of my career, I co-discovered several hundred asteroids and tens of comets in the early 2000s as part of MIT Lincoln Lab's asteroid discovery program called Linear. And so having a 1.7-kilometer-wide hunk of space rock named after you is honestly pretty cool. Since Definitely. then, I've continued. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it was a nice surprise, and it was a welcome surprise last year. So I, I've been working on asteroids and, and other objects in the solar system for a long time. And so, so this was a nice treat, and it sort of cuts into this this whole light pollution discover you know pr- discussion. It, it sort of intersects with this whole light pollution discussion. You know, since since then, since I was part of this program, I've, I've continued to work on help characterize solar system bodies, and mm-hmm. I, I suppose that that's part of the reason I put so much time into light pollution mitigation. Each year, I'm literally losing the ability to discover and characterize more and more faint objects. So you can think about objects like nearby asteroids or exoplanets orbiting distant stars. They were observable from Massachusetts only a few short years ago and, and are sometimes now impossible to detect if they're buried, buried in a light dome. Oh, wow. Only a few years ago. How far back are you saying? So Wallace Observatory was conceived in, in their late 60s, basically because MIT did not have our own observatory. And all of a sudden, astronomy students who were interested in astronomy went from eight one semester to 500. And that was in 1969. So you can sort of imagine that the Apollo moon landing mm-hmm. had, a, had a huge impact and interest in astronomy. And so MIT, you know, 
already had a radio observatory, a Haystack Radio Observatory in Westford, which is about 45 miles northwest of Boston. So it's outside the, the, the Boston metro area, just outside of 495. And it was a dark enough location. You imagine back then, this was farmland left over, developed, you know, early, in the early 1700s. And it was still a sleepy collection of farm towns. We, we own 1,300 acres in Massachusetts. So it's a very large protected piece of land. And it was dark and radio quiet. So it was perfect for radio astronomy, perfect for optical observations. But that's changed drastically. Just, you know, I've been working there since 2009. And just in the last few years, we've actually lost the Milky Way. So, so we went from being able to see it and lost the Milky Way. I think we can get it back. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful we can, we can go backwards, given you know some of the case studies that we've been working on. But you know, it, it shows that this is happening rapidly. You know, when it, whether it's three percent a year or ten percent or twenty percent, it's happening very rapidly. It's, it's definitely the, the fastest growing environmental issue, and us astronomers are, are keenly aware of, of how fast this is, this is changing. And, and is this northwest of Lowell? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's about. It's it's roughly due west from Lowell. Okay. Yeah, so it's right on the New Hampshire border. And we are surrounded by, we're actually, you know, sort of one of the more remote sites on, on the property. Our closest streetlight is about half a kilometer. But even with that, you know, we're, we're seeing larger and larger light domes. It, you know, it's not just streetlights. It's residential. It's it's commercial. It's strip malls. It's a little bit of all of the above. Well, the, but I hope the thing with LEDs, to- right, Tim, you can light up any place like a professional sports field now, which is... Both a perk, I guess, and a problem. <laughs> yeah, and, and I would say that one of the just sort of anecdotally, and you know, I'm a I'm a natural observer, and, and driving home at two or three in the morning, one of the things I think a lot of us observers have noticed is that residential has changed significantly as the cost of LEDs have come down, and they're more readily available, and they're easy to put up, and and especially when you start talking about things like solar powered LED, you know, uplights that you know illuminate your shrubbery or your trees or your rock wall or, or your house. We're seeing a lot of wealthier residents illuminate their property extensively to the point that that it really does look like, you know, an NFL stadium from a distance. You know, we see LED strip lights. Some of these houses, you know, quite honestly, we joke that they sort of look like UFOs from a distance. There, there are a lot of lights. There's, some of them are blinking. They're, they're dynamically changing and they're very blue. And mm-hmm. so we can see all of that in our data. We can see the scattered blue light in our data. Let's jump into the show. And before we get going, I do have some good news on the astronomy front. And this comes from prior guest, Drew Evans. So this is a quartet of amateur astrophotographers, including Evans, Jeffrey Horn, Jasa Rubla, and Brian Falda. They identified planetary nebula in the constellation Cepheus, which colloquially known as the Elephant's Trunk Nebula. They found a couple of planetary nebulas in there in IC 1396. Very cool find for those guys. Two new discoveries are currently under review and are designated as Horful Ev Reb 1 and 2, just the names of the, the quartet that found it. Good job, Drew and team. Since we were talking about those, those neighborhoods, right? One of the things that I think there's, and maybe Tara, when you made the film, there probably wasn't as much material out yet on the ecological impact of light at night. But let, let's get into the ecology side, because this is an area over the past year that's really, really grown. I came across this video from Be Smart YouTube, and it's essentially a video titled, It's Autumn Everywhere Except for Under the Streetlight, which appears to show trees they're retaining their summer green leaves well into the foliage season when situated under a streetlight. The narrator, Joe Hansen, attributes the cause of that to the artificial light of the streetlight. Have you guys ever seen anything like this in person? I haven't. 
I haven't specifically seen it in person, but I was just talking to a friend the other day about my film and she, she didn't know anything about light pollution, but she goes, that's weird. I have a bush outside of my house where the light shines at night. And she said, you know, one side of the bush at night when the flowers are blooming during, during the daytime, the flowers open. And then at nighttime, the flowers close, but she went out one night and she noticed the side of the bush where the light was shining, the flowers were staying open on this bush. And she's like, that can't be good. (laughs) You know, and she's not particularly, you know, involved in, 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 you know, environmental um, activism, but, but she noticed this. And when I brought up the light pollution thing, she's like, oh, maybe I should do something about that light so that it's probably affecting the plant in a, in a negative way. I, I have a short anecdote about that. So one of the images, and, I, and having lived in, in Boston and San Francisco and other places, I've, de- I've definitely seen this, you know, in real time where you have municipal lighting that, that lights up these poor little trees on the sidewalk in the effort to, to green the cities. Well, and, well, Tim, you know, a lot of times new developments are built in cities like here in Philadelphia when we, we have new apartment complexes come up, right? They put trees in and then they put a light like right adjacent to the tree, right? Absolutely. So so one of the, the images I often use for my my introductory talks to light pollution is is from when I took my kids trick-or-treating uh, about a year ago. And so in the, in the image, here's this lonely birch tree in the middle of someone's yard and uh, perfectly visible from the light coming off of the house. Uh, yet they have this very blue LED shining at the tree and there's new vegetative growth. They're talking about October 31st. So everything should be, you know, leaves should be down. Um, the, the tree should be dormant. Uh, for the winter. And there's vegetative growth at the bottom of the tree. And yet the top of the tree doesn't look so hot. So the, so the bottom half has new leaves budding. And at the top, you sort of have this raggedy tree that looks like it's probably, you know, pest ridden. And so you can think about that in a way that, you know, besides the fact that uplight is 100% energy waste, it's more than 100% energy waste. When you think about you paid to have that tree installed, you you, you dug a hole, you paid for the tree. And and so you're also wasting this this poor tree uh, that's that's getting manipulated by your artificial light. That's a really interesting uh, little tidbit there, Tim. I like that. Well, staying on topic of plants, there's a study out of Journal of Ecology. The study looked at 17 plant species, first exposed to daylight, then followed by artificial light at night. It looked to see how well native plant species and plants often considered invasive or non-native reacted to artificial light at night through a variety of conditions, including soil nutrition and competition. The results may not be completely shocking given the ability of invasive plants to quickly adapt to their new surroundings, but the findings consistently identified significant variations in biomass growth, favoring invasive plants over native plants across all levels of nutrition and competition when placed under artificial light at night. So this story pairs up nicely with the previous showcasing the 24-7 daytime effect on plants. How do you see the rise in artificial light in mass affecting plant life? Often you'll see, like I, like I mentioned, like you have a lot of new construction here, and I'm sure at pretty pretty much everywhere that is growing, you have lights put on the outside of apartment complexes now, or even homes. Homes will have decorative LED. I'm not lying about this. Decorative LEDs in the walls on new construction, and so your house will look like a hotel kind of, where it has different. You know, it has. Decorative LEDs could be changing color or it could just be a LED strip or LED kind of like a bar. How do you see this happening? Like, what do we, what are we looking at in 20 years down the line for these plants? Are we going to have some, I mean, we're, 
we already see the consequences on insects. Anyone want to take a stab at that? Well, this is kind of interesting because another film that I'm working on right now is on native plants and how they are so important to the pollinators, but also how invasive species are taking over a lot of areas and, you know, how that's, how that's affecting sort of the whole food chain, you know, and if we have these lights on that are making it easier for these native plants or these invasive plants to take over, you know, they're already at an advantage because they're, they're naturally um, propagating quicker than, than the natives and taking over large areas, you know, out competing the more nutritious plants for the, the local insects. And when you take that out, then, you know, that's the bottom of the food chain. And, you know, if you don't have those moths, those insects, those, those bugs to do their job for the plant, not only are you losing the variety there, but you're also losing the food source that starts the whole food chain on up. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's, if, if things continue this way, it doesn't look good for, for native plants in the future. And, and, you know, hopefully that's another reason, because that's another movement that I'm seeing happening is people wanting to put in native plants over, over invasive or decorative plants. So hopefully they'll, they'll think that through with the, with the lights. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Do you do see that trend going on right now? And to your point, like when you have insects that are naturally trained on, they, they like, it's kind of, it's kind of like saying, you know, you like, I'm just going through, I don't know if anyone's, I apologize if anyone's vegan or vegetarian here. If I like eating steak and then all of a sudden I'm forced to eat grasshoppers, like I'm not going to want to do that. And that's what the insects, when you're, when you're taking away those native plants or, or making those native plants degrade, the, the native habitat is changing and you're not going to see a new line of, of insects. That's one of the reasons why the invasives are so strong, right? Because they don't have a natural pest. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. On the bird front, we have one from Nature Communications, and this is a biggie. Future guest Jeffrey Bueller, in a paper led by Kyle Horton and many other talented individuals, identified that Sky Glow serves as a key influencer in predicting bird migration stopover densities. Skyglow essentially acted as what they term ecological traps. A study used over 10 million radar observations with 70% of the models proving out man-made Skyglow as a top predictor for bird layovers. To be clear, light pollution beat out tree canopy cover, temperatures, or even anticipate precipitation as driving indicators from where birds stopped off at. That's a big paper right there. That's I, When I read something like this, I really question if any of it really seeps over in like building designers. We, we see new towers going up, right? And they, right, they become glow sticks or they have decorative LEDs along the sides or each level has a decorative LED or all that light is attracting the birds. And then we get cloud cover and it, we have mass kills, right? Lauren, I know you mentioned before that Australia was first in, was it the globe at night or light? Uh, yeah. Earth hour. That's it. Yes. Earth hour. So do you guys have a lights out campaign down there? Not a lights out campaign, as far as I'm aware, and not anything that targets kind of yeah, the impact on birds specifically. And Earth Hour was sort of largely symbolic, like it wasn't really geared towards sort of reducing light pollution. It was more about light standing in for sort of this like carbon dependence more broadly. So I guess that's the kind of context I was looking at it, okay. at it in was housing light 
yeah, was becoming kind of emblematic of just like the Anthropocene kind of more broadly. And these images of kind of like the illuminated earth at night became these sort of emblematic images of sort of where, you know, the world is at, I guess, in in a more general sense. But yeah, I think like, you know, the impact on birds and stuff is interesting because I think a lot of people tend to think of light as something kind of immaterial or as, I guess, just like an aesthetic quality rather than something that is kind of part of the environment. And that's started to change, I think, recently, especially with the kind of conversation around circadian rhythms and blue light. But it's been a recent shift for sure. And now I think like there's more of an awareness of light as something that does kind of change environments, not only on a sort of aesthetic level, but also on a sort of, yeah, on the level of making them livable for certain species or, you know, certain humans or or not livable. So so I think that there's a lot of crossover between the kind of conversations around animal health and the conversations around human health. And they sort of bleed into one another and can reinforce each other in ways that are sort of sometimes productive and sometimes helpful, but then other times like a little bit confused, maybe. I'm not sure. Because <laughs> they are separate <laughs> issues as well. Right. So It's not just the avians that have issues, right? We can talk about fish. In the Ecology of Freshwater Fish, an article found that artificial light extends daytime activity of the European Gugian and the Italian Ruffled Days, whereby the Gugian proceeded across a dam fish passage with extra caution under artificial light. Then in a natural night environment, the Ruffled Days proceeded at a higher success rate than otherwise in a natural night environment. It has an addendum to this context where the, how the lighting is changing behavior and environmental, I guess, consistency underwater I want to point out an article from New York State in which the New York Power Authority won an International LIT Lighting Design Award for adding extensive amount of LEDs to various canals, bridges, and decorative downward wall washing on various lighthouses. And you can see the picture in the show notes. Essentially, the Western New York canals and bridges are lit up extensively, and that light is almost always either directed partially or directly towards the water, probably unintentionally, just to kind of give it the ambience. And to your point, Lauren, people don't, they don't make that association, right? From the Jordan Journal of Biological Sciences, warmer light may be better. 105 juvenile catfish were studied under various lighting situations that included only red, blue, green, or yellow LED lights compared to fish that were kept in total darkness and fish that were kept in an environment that contained some light. Catfish reared in total darkness were found to have the lowest survival rate. However, fish reared in yellow or red lighting conditions were found to be the most successful, with yellow significantly boosting a metric they analyzed, the food conversion ratio. And speaking of selective lighting, in the journal Environments, a study seeks to identify positive uses for light traps for insects. The one in question is non-biting midge, which in quantities apparently takes away from people's enjoyment of lakeside activities. It's posited in the paper that selective and targeted light traps could protect sensitive nighttime pollinators like moths while simultaneously reducing the need for insecticides to control nuisance lighting. Does anyone have a take on that? The You're targeting specific pests with particular bands of light rather than spraying chemicals everywhere. Is that a win? Is this a, a move in the right direction? I mean, I'm, I'm not a, you know, someone who studies insects, but I think everybody can agree that minimizing pesticides, whether you're growing your own food or, or worried about monarch butterflies or, or birds and, and so on, that's that's a great idea. What I'm concerned about is is in that study, they were using 6,000 K 
LEDs that so you have this hyper blue light and I, I would I would want to know that it, you know it's studied further because we we actually tried this at the observatory before we we knew a lot about this stuff and we had one of these you know there's different types of insect traps and one of the kinds shines different color LEDs and it attracts them but what we found was most of what was in there was not mosquitoes which is the thing we were trying to get rid of it was moths and fireflies and all the things that we actually need you know pollinators and and fragile insects that you know are are experiencing a population decline. So I'm not totally convinced just from our own experience that, you know, you can be that selective, but who knows, you know, maybe with further research, they'll, they'll figure this out. Tara, I saw you itching over there. I don't know what I was going to say. No, I I like Tim's point. Yeah. Yeah. I I like his point. I just want to piggyback off of that. If, if, like he said, we could do further research and really pinpoint that exact um, light frequency that attracts that particular insect without affecting the other ones, then that's, that's definite, definitely a win. But if it's going to be pulling in fireflies and nighttime pollinators, like the the moths, then yeah, maybe we're not moving in the right direction at all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a hard debate. Yeah. It's just kind of replacing one one extreme with another, right? That would be my fear. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got you guys warmed up here. So I want to switch over to our policy news, which I apologize this month. It was quite extensive compared to previous months. And it's probably not the most exciting thing for you guys to talk about specifically, but let's go. Let's roll the dice. Let's see, see how this goes. The articles are interesting though. Let's start off here with residents of Port Harcourt, Nigeria, whom appear to be exuberant at the installation of new solar power streetlights. One shop owner feels safer walking home at night. Another shop owner notices an uptick in foot traffic at night. These ideas, mainly the latter, are shared by residents in the town of Rochester, Michigan. Rochester, Detroit suburb, wrapped five blocks of their main street and $275,000 worth of string lights. To explain to you at home, the buildings themselves look like glowing Christmas gifts wrapped with endless strands distinctive only by a separation of color. Per the Wall Street Journal, before the first holiday light show debuted in Rochester in 2006, commercial vacancies were at 10%. Now they sit only at 2 to 3%. One business owner even compares a visual experience to Disneyland. Business owners credit the extravagant holiday lighting with creating a boomtown. I will add that this approach has been replicated in many areas. Even if we see it here in our Maniac neighborhood, whose main street looks like a fantasy land kind of decorated from sidewalk to roof with countless holiday lights. The lights all share a purpose of expanding and growing commercial activity at night. I'm very interested in hearing everyone's thoughts on, I guess there's a, a give and take is the, we've witnessed an extensive brightening of our community commercial corridors under the guise of safety. But in reality, it really feels like it's to promote commerce, specifically nighttime economies. Uh, so obviously the, the first question I have is the most obvious one. How does this kind of brightening make you feel when you partake in nighttime activities? Do you want to shop more? Do you feel a downside when you're actually partaking in nighttime activities? How do you feel? I, I can jump in here. Yeah. I think it's interesting because like the relationship between sort of commerce and light is so kind of deeply rooted. And if you look at sort of like the, you know, even just the first kind of like white way lighting of the 1920s in Times Square, like it goes back you know, kind of that far to when it was light was associated with the kind of glamour of this, I guess, like, yeah, kind of modernist lifestyle. And, and of course it's always been kind of bound up with commerce and, and the promise of increasing kind of commercial activity and, you know, drawing kind of commercial power to a city. But I guess on the other hand, it's kind of like, 
yeah, I'm wary of sort of just like dismissing kind of Christmas lighting as like, oh, this is frivolous or because I think, you know, it's, I don't know, like it, it's light, light serves so different. Yeah, it's emotional. It serves so many different cultural functions. And I think like, yeah, to, to kind of, I mean, there's obviously like in the depths of winter, I mean, I, I understand why people are sort of drawn to the idea of like lighting up their environments. And there is a kind of strong sense of community that can be gained from doing that. But I think probably at its most powerful, what something like the conversation around light pollution or the dark sky movement does is draw attention to the fact that like space is shared and night space is shared. And so when you, when you light up your building and that cuts both ways, right? Like when you light up your building, that can be an act of generosity, not just to yourself, but to your community. On the other hand, you're not just lighting up like your own space, but also that of everyone else. So like ideally that leads to a conversation where those decisions are made with the community kind of based on not just like the people who live there, but also the other creatures who live there and the insects who live there. And I think, yeah, in an ideal world, that's where that conversation would lead. But yeah, I don't know. Christmas lights is an interesting one. Often, yeah, the kind of debate around like what light is necessary often seems to kind of come back to this notion of Christmas lights. It's like a real, I guess it's, yeah, it's just indicative of that tension between sort of community celebration and sort yeah. of unnecessary unnecessary frivolities of like modern life. I don't know. <laughs> it's a tough one for sure, right? The commerce side, I feel like, is is a very challenging one. And I guess the harder question is, are places like Rochester, Michigan, are they kind of an indictment against the dark sky movement saying, hey, look, see, this is how beneficial light at night is. This is why we want to have more of it. Okay. So, I mean, as someone who who also works a lot in the, the policy end of things, we've been working on a, in fact, we just published it, a model lighting ordinance or bylaw for Massachusetts and, and really applicable to, to anywhere in the Northeast. And so we've been thinking about a lot of these issues in, in detail. And in particular, the holiday lighting comes up every single time, whether you're at a public meeting or, or dealing with, you know, residents who are just concerned that you're going to take something they, they have pride in or, or have an emotional, you know, attachment to. And, and I'm honestly not against Christmas lighting at all. I think we just have to make sure that as, as activists and scientists, we're, we're careful that we're not against all lighting. But what I worry about, whether it's the Nigeria shop owner example uh, or the holiday lighting example, is that, you know, for example, a solar-powered light, no matter where it's mounted, people stop thinking about the light when they stop paying for it in their electricity bill. Uh, and so, you know, it might have initial economic reasons, but there's probably an extra step that could minimize the light pollution part, right? Like, so so maybe the shop owner needs it for the first few hours of the night, but what about the 75% of the night when people are sleeping? Is is it really necessary? And so, you know, motion sensors or timers or dimmers can go a long way to, to, to minimize that and, and sort of thread the needle with all of that. And then, you know, similarly with the holiday lighting, not against it in principle, but I'd be careful about using this particular town as an example when it's a novelty. And and what happens when the novelty wears off and then it has to sort of, they have to sort of have a shootout. It has to escalate. You know, we see that in, in New England now with the Christmas lights. So you'll have in towns competitions to see who can have the most grandiose Christmas lighting. And it gets more and more ridiculous to the point where there's now searchlights in the sky. There's laser beams shining into other people's pr- properties. There's sound and there's music. There's noise throughout the night. It's a lot of commotion, and so that's probably not good for people sleeping either. And so you sort of have to think about the the peaceable enjoyment of your own property, even if it's you know to some degree a, a right to to display you know whatever free speech you you want on your own property. You, you can't take that away from, from the person next door. And so uh, we we've got to find a, a balance here, I think, uh, especially as LEDs become incredibly cheap to operate. Well, I, I want to actually jump on that. So if we're going to talk Christmas lights. Let's 
let's go to the Christmas light stories. So there was a, a Texas man made news for bright spotlights, Tim, as you imagine, he placed the top of his house that shot four white beams across the sky. Self-described Christmas nerd, I believe geek would probably be the more opportune phrase, but I'm not going to split hairs. Lauren, you can criticize me on that one because I know you're a literary person, so you can have the final say on that. But Chris Hargraves sets up an elaborate, synchronized Christmas light show every year from his house. The house sits in a development which looks like houses on up to about a half acre of land total with about 15, 25 feet between them. And given that the lights shoot upward and dance in the clouds, Nearby residents apparently mistook his holiday extravaganza as an alien invasion. The lights triggered law enforcement to stop by his jolly abode to confirm that he wasn't targeting aircraft flying overhead. The Hartgraves light show ran from 6.30 to 9 p.m. every 15 minutes. So we're not looking at someone who's blasting it through the wee hours of the day, right? They're turning off at 9 p.m. And then we had similar news of the, the spotlight thing, Tim, right? In California, family utilized an, a, a light to act as a bat signal for Santa. And it divided a community. A spotlight that was planned to run from 5.30 to 10 p.m. every day between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Evidently, and of course, the battle plays out on social media, the family took down the spotlight a couple of weeks for a couple of weeks after due to vile and outright nasty comments they received on X and Facebook. The Walker family doesn't appear to have any malicious intent behind the spotlight, Rather, just simply wanting to bring joy to the holiday season. They even ran the spotlight at a third of its power during the prior year. So, Tim, that's kind of getting to your point where, I guess, where do you even begin on that? Like, how how do you have these conversations with people? What do you even, what would you even say to your neighbor who has it lit up like LaGuardia? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess just personally, I'm not against fun, but I, I am against you know, I, I think even just on a safety level, I would be highly concerned for, for airline pilots. It's probably highly distracting. So that alone, you know, for me would be a, I'd be highly concerned about that. And then, you know, why does one person get to, to disrupt everybody else's sky? I guess that's a, that's a sort of a cultural question, but you know, there's a lot of policy in place that would probably forbid something like this, whether it's a, a town ordinance or a state regulation or even federal, but then it comes down to, you know, we're generally not enforcing lighting regulations in this country. So, so that gets to another point of, you know, it's probably a violation to begin with. It'd be my guess, but you know, somebody, the town maybe needs to step in and, and, and come up, you know, I, I would say that any directed coherent beam is is probably problematic, especially, you know, you have a good chance that it's going to reflect off of something or, or glint off something end up in somebody's house. could be distracting to drivers. If it malfunctions, there's a whole host of concerns with this. Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive that this is where we're at in society. What do you say to those people who who get nasty about it? The one family, the Walker family, was receiving just really nasty messages from people, I, I believe, who not just were neighbors, but people who considered themselves environmentalists. What, what do we say to those people? Like that, that can't be acceptable, right? There has to be a better way to handle this. If the law enforcement isn't going to take care of it, ordinances aren't working, what's a better way to do it than just flaming someone on Facebook. I would, I would argue that probably has that nastiness probably has more to do with like online cultures than it does with the actual kind of, yeah, the way that those, that that conversation might play out if it happened in say like a town meeting, you know, like, I, yeah, I think, I think that might be just kind of, yeah, the culture of being online a little bit or like the cultures of Facebook and kind of, 
you know, Facebook. I saw some really nasty stuff play out of my Facebook community group, like all the time. It was just like, I don't know. I kind of think that it wasn't often wasn't even about the issue. But but again, I think those conversations would have gone differently if it happened in real life. Maybe not. Maybe that's idealistic for me to say. I also think when people are criticized, they tend to dig their heels in online. And I think that like, especially around kind of when it comes to these questions of like personal freedom and sort of like personal expression and when something's like a tradition, you know, like I think that article mentioned this had been happening since 2018 and it was a tradition, which I found kind of funny because like, you know, a tradition that's been running since 2018, like does that count as a tradition? Like, I'm not sure. <laughs> and also is tradition alone a reason to keep doing something? That sort of that story reminded me of the, again, this is an example from the United States. I'm not super like familiar with the North American context, but the Twin Towers beams of lights that right. were the commemorative lights Yes, that I think we'd like, yeah, just killing hundreds and hundreds of birds every year. But obviously there again, it's this like highly emotive issue. And, and so, you know, it, it t- tends to kind of spark this passionate debate, but, but yeah, I think like it is, you know, yeah. Like Tim was saying, it's kind of a decision that's made on behalf of everyone by a small number or of people or one or two people sometimes. So I think thinking of lighting landscapes as communal is really important, basically. Um, thinking of light, lighting as part of the environment is is really crucial, yeah. yeah. What do you say to those people who, you know, have the, they just want to bring joy? What, what are you going to say to someone who says, well, this is, you know, I, I just am trying to make it a fun holiday. What's wrong with that? I mean, star, stargazing can be a source of communal joy too, I guess. Like it's 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 often about kind of just reframing the conversation slightly. And I, I think hearing people's concerns and giving them space to kind of voice what they feel like they're losing and what they feel like they're missing and what, what you know, because like it's true that people are, you know, it's it's harder to build community now and it's harder to find kind of points at which to kind of like, yeah, around which to coalesce like as a community. Things are more individualized and and I think people are longing for kind of like those, yeah, I guess, collective symbols that they can rely upon to like give them a sense of belonging and and stargazing could be that. Well, on the topic yeah. of, of ordinances, right, Tim, um, going to get to the Davis story in a second, but I want to bump forward to the Moab one where we have a story from Moab, which Moab felt the need to make amendments to the outdoor lighting ordinance. And evidently Moab actually enforces this. So there you go. You have one town in all of America that, is, is doing their job. So these new amendments gave residents five years to comply before it becomes a law of land. An array of forward thinking the town of Moab is offering a low to no cost subsidized program to cover updating expenses of business or residential fixtures. I'd like to poll you guys on your feelings regarding these amendments. And Lawrence, since you're outside of us and we just spoke about something here in much of the U S or in probably Alberta, since they're pretty much just like Texas, we have this thing where it's it's my right. Whenever we we have a we need a validation for anything that we do to others, at least it feels that way, or anything that it may be irresponsible or rude, we have this validation. It's called it's it's my right, and we always like to put the onus on the the victim, so to say. So anyone feel free to respond. But I'm curious to how an Australian would view or or a UK. Are you originally from the UK, Lauren? I'm. I lived in the UK for ten years, but yeah, I'm from Australia. Originally. For sure. Okay. So I'm curious to how Australian would view this. Is it overreach for a town of Moab to constrain decorative holiday lighting to a 10 p.m. shutoff time? Is that overreach? I. I mean, I don't personally think so, but I don't. Again, like I, I don't. I don't think that would necessarily receive 
the same pushback here. There's a lot of, I think growing up in Australia, there's a lot of, you grow up with sort of various restrictions anyway because there's so many sort of endemic species here and, you know, also like often you grow up with an awareness that you're sort of living on stolen land and that like, you know, part of part of existing in this space is like being aware of that. Mm. So, so I think, I mean, I'm not sure if that's really there in the way that, yeah, again, like I'm not super familiar with the North American context, I guess. No, this, there is, this, this kind is of fine. Yeah. Yeah. There is this question, you know, this sort of sense probably in North America of kind of like, yeah, personal freedom being really important. And I wouldn't necessarily say that's the same as in Australia. So yeah, I, I don't think that would necessarily be the same pushback here, but that's not to say that, I don't know. I think aspects of that do exist in the culture here as well, actually. You know, when I was filming the Dark Sky film, I was talking to these organizations who had been working with really rural communities up in Maine. And you do get a lot of that independent kind of feeling where it's like my right, my property, whether it's a business owner or an individual. And they ran into a lot of that and they, they really made some progress on just, you know, meeting the people where they were and, and really taking their time to, to get to know, you know, what was their resistance? A lot of people were putting up resistance to putting in these policies. And once they took the time to actually explain, like, you know, the big thing for them was astrotourism. So they said, well, here, if we put in this ordinance, then we can lower our lights or we can keep our lights low and it will keep our skies dark. And then that will bring people to the community and then your business will do better. And so when you really, when they really took the time to get in and know their community and talk to their community and what was important to them, they were able to find uh, common ground and 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 come to a reasoning to put in that that ordinance. So they did they did hit a lot of pushback, all the organizations I talked to, but they were also able to make some headway just with, you know, yeah. education. Yeah, I'm sensing yeah. a common theme here of of simply communicating in a personalized manner and trying to, you know, convey convey it's this at the end of the day, what you stated was a it sounded like a win for all. Is that kind of what they were explaining? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, really people were just resistant to the thought of an ordinance. And once once they realized there was benefit to them and that it would bring back the night sky, which everybody loves, whether they, they know it or not. Yeah, every, everybody everybody was in agreement to go ahead and move forward with some kind of policy. And if I could just jump on that, you know, I, I think the word overreach is is not unfamiliar to me. You know, when we've tried to pass ordinances in, in Massachusetts, which is you know, normally very environmentally progressive, we've, we've seen and heard that argument, it, especially if you conduct those arguments on Facebook, right? So it sort of exacerbates the whole f- feeling of being persecuted, you know, about your lights and so on. But conducting anything on Facebook is <laughs> exacerbates yeah, I, I, plenty know, of feelings. Learned. <laughs> yeah. For any of us who've, who've tried to, you know, move policy forward on, on, on social media. I, I think, you know, that's, that's not optimal and, and probably <laughs> counterproductive. That said, I think anytime you have this argument, there, there's going to be a, especially in the United States, this, this need for personal freedom that sort of, super, you know, supersedes any, any other concerns. But what I would also say is that, you know, back to some of our early talking points about economic and, and commerce discussions, 
We know from, from there's a study a few years ago that in the Colorado Plateau, that the four states, which includes, you know, Moab, astrotourism brings in billions of dollars and thousands of jobs, right? So, so there's an economic argument too that, you know, you can have your Christmas lights, but how about you just be a little bit reasonable and we shut them off so that we can have both? And I think that's, that's, that's a pretty good example of, of a good solution where you can still have your thing, whatever it is, but you can't destroy everybody else's thing, so and, to speak. Tara, is that the is that pretty much the argument that was relayed up in up in there in Maine? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it was really just about the education of okay, you can still have lights, but you know, here's here's the difference between you know a six thousand k light versus twenty seven thousand k light or twenty seven hundred. And and once they realized that yes, they could still light up their business, but like in a more dark sky friendly way you know, using the shields and making sure that it's the, the, the lower Kelvin rating, then they started to become more open to it, realizing that they could still have their lighting and they could still light their parking lot, light their storefront, but doing it properly for the, for the dark, for the need of the dark sky and the, and the safety of the community. So in Moab, they also want to curtail offensive lighting it emanates from neighbors' garages, from sides of houses, non-shielded garage floodlights are part of that. And then they also would like to curtail the commercial lighting to turn off or at least very much dim down after 10 p.m. So maybe this is a good model. Maybe, maybe pay attention to this going forward and see how this plays out. I think this is a good little time for a break. I know, Laura, and well, Tara, you're good. You're almost ready for lunch. I'm, I haven't eaten dinner yet. But Laura, you, you probably need some more coffee. So why don't you grab a fresh cup? I want to thank my guests today, Lauren Colley, Tara Roberts, Zabriskie, and Mr. Tim Brothers. Very glad to have you all with me today. You have excellent insight. I'm loving this. And I want to thank you at home. Thank you for listening to Light Pollution News this month. Light Pollution News is completely funded by listeners just like yourself. Listeners help offset our audio server space, web server space, and of course, the big one, audio editing costs, simply by your donations. I'd like you to be part of that community and help us be financially stable. So why don't you check out the show notes and click the supporter link. All we ask is for a simple monthly donation of $3, the price of a coffee, which Lauren is getting right now, as a thank you for all the hard work and the effort we put into the show each month. It's a full month experience. So on my end, it begins the moment we wrap up this episode. I'll actually be working to build the next one later tonight. And I know we push it through editing and start grinding it out through any of our marketing channels and whatnot. It is a full month. So if you find that the show offers you value, why not become a supporter today? And if you're already a supporter, thank you so much. The more we can do to grow the show to a financial solvency, the more we can put our own funds, or at least I can put my own funds toward improvements, like say maybe having a video component, wouldn't that be neat? So Tara, you did something that I've come across many folks who've done the AT and always that experience changes lives. I'm curious, is there a way you can, I don't know if you can do this. Is there a before AT Tara and post AT Tara? Can you describe what that (laughs) that is? I I would say that it, it's not a drastic difference, but you know I've always been into nature. I've always been into living my own life. But so I hiked the AT 21 years ago in 2003, and uh, at the time I was in college, and I took a semester off to hike the trail. And I would say 
hiking the trail, like definitely gave me time to really think about what it was I wanted out of life. You know, being out on the trail, you realize that you can live with very little. You have just what you have on your back. And, you know, realizing that you don't have to go the traditional route. Like you meet a lot of people, you meet a lot of characters at different stages in their life that have maybe not taken a traditional corporate job or a traditional track or or they're getting ready to switch their their career or something drastic in their life. So you gather all these experiences out there. You know, the Appalachian Trail is not just about a nature experience, but it's it's also about like a community experience. You're really getting to know other people that are out there. And for me, I'd say the biggest thing was it just it reinforced my love for nature and it encouraged me to blend that with my with my filmmaking and photography trajectory. So I was in the middle of college studying mass communications and I was getting ready to go into my senior year where I needed a project, like a like a senior project. And for six months, I was thinking, what do I want to do? And I kept staring at these signs that said, leave no trace, leave no trace. <laughs> and I was like, well, of course, of course you want to leave no trace, but made me realize how important that education was. So I went back when I was done with the trail, I went back to my professor and I said, this is what I want to do my film on. I want to do an educational film on the seven principles of leave no trace. And he said, that's great. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, which was really right down the road from where I grew up and where I went to college and in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. So you went to Shepherds? I went, yeah, I went yeah. to Shepherd yeah. University. Yeah. He said, go there. I want you to talk to people and say, this is what I'm doing. Can you use it? And can you work with me to make this happen? And so he really encouraged me to kind of step into that professional role as a student and start building relationships and learning how to work with a client. So that was my first experience um, doing something of that. And, and, you know, because of that, that film I shot uh, as a senior, it has sort of triggered all the other projects that I've done along the way in my career. So including the dark sky film, you know, through a series of events, but eventually the person that got me into that had seen the work I had done previously. So yeah, it all, it all leads back to the ET. <laughs> it does. Sarah, I got a lot of, I mean, a ton of questions we can't deal on this show <laughs> with, but did you grow up in Shepherdstown or in Harpers Ferry area? I grew up on Mar- on the Maryland side of the Potomac River. So a uh, walking distance from Harpers Ferry Okay, and, you know, maybe 20 minutes from, from Shepherd University. Yeah. And was, what were the skies like? Were you able to see stars at night? Yeah, so I live in a rural um, area, 50 acres, and uh, we have this big open field. And I used to spend my pre-teenage and teenage years sleeping out under the stars if it wasn't rainy, just my sleeping bag. And I would stare up at the stars and I would ask all the questions about all the things you ask about the stars. And I started reading books and learning more and more about the universe and asking my brother to explain things to me because he's a little more science oriented. So he could sort of break it down for me. And it was a really cool experience. And in in, uh, Charlestown, which is, I don't know, maybe 10 miles, by the way, the bird flies, there's a, uh, this is in West Virginia, but we could, we can see sort of the the glow, the sky glow from, from my parents' house. They have a racetrack there. 
And I don't know, maybe sometime around the time I was in college, they put up more lights or bigger lights or something. And now that whole section of the Southern sky is like obliterated. You can't, you can't see anything yet. You can still see the Milky Way from my parents' property, but it is sort of not as good as it used to be. You you do notice that sky glow and, and all the other development that's been done in the area. Well, that I, lights I, up the sky. I asked that because I, I grew up similar to you. I was able to see a trace Milky Way. And, and when I was like a teenager, it was so cool. I just, and I, I loved the act of going outside in the dark and hearing all the animals and looking at the stars. There's just something yeah. weird and, and spiritual about it. I, I can't, I can't explain it. And I still love it. It's still one of my favorite things to do. But how about you, Tim, Lauren? Have Did you guys grow up able to see the stars? Yeah, I, I grew up being able to see the Milky Way from my house, which is now a rarity. I think, what is it, less than 15% of people in the United States can see it from their own home. So I was fortunate in Western Massachusetts. That's obviously changed since, you know, the 1980s. But similarly, I used to, you know, lay outside on a blanket in, in, in the summer months and, and watch the, the Milky Way or, or planets or, or, you know, meteor showers. And that was certainly inspiring and, and I'm sure had some bit of influence on, on me pursuing a, an astronomy degree. But obviously that's, that's changed. And, you know, I've lived in major cities where, you know, at best you can see the moon and Jupiter. And then I've also lived in the middle of the desert in New Mexico, where the amount of stars you can see is, is sort of disorienting. It's just sort of mind blowing. So I, I've seen a little bit of it all, but we're certainly seeing it, it, it rapidly change here. And where I live now in, in Pepperell, Massachusetts, we can still see the Milky Way. So we're sort of a rarity, but you know, the, the clock is ticking still. Mm. So, you know, maybe, maybe some amount of years, if, if we don't really do something, we, we could lose it here as well. Lauren, did you grow up with the CNA stars? I mean, you can get to places where you can see some amount of stars fairly easily from Sydney, but yeah, there's not great night sky visibility from Sydney itself. I had, yeah, a fairly sort of like urban upbringing and then lived in Sydney for 10 years. So I guess like, where I'm coming at these topics is often from sort of like, yeah, that kind of more urban perspective and also just like the importance of kind of making stars accessible from urban areas, which I think is important. But yeah, I guess I wanted to like, earlier you were kind of talking about the experience of like going out and hearing lots of sounds at night. And and I think that's something that's often left out of like the way that people think about the value of dark spaces. There's this kind of overarching narrative that like night is like a time for sleep and a time for rest. And this you know, time for stillness. And, and actually when you like, you know, when you live somewhere that has high biodiversity and you go out at night, it's incredibly loud. It's incredibly, sounds like a party. You know? yeah, it's a very, <laughs> so, it's very active. Yeah. And I think, I think that that an awareness of that is important because it helps to understand that like night landscapes are something that have kind of active an active life of their own and value, not just as kind of like, yeah, spaces of rest or stillness or pause, but as their own sort of landscapes that like allow their own forms of kind of like life and, and, you know, different cultures have used night in many different ways, not just for sort of rest, but also as spaces for kind of celebration. And I think that's, yeah, that's something that's sometimes missing from sort of main, mainstream discussion of why darkness is important or why night's important. Well, that's very well said. And it reminds me, we had a guest on a while back that said, compared it to people of light and people of dark. And Lauren, in this case, coming as a person of light, I guess is probably the way to put it. People who didn't grow up with a, a real, a real natural night. 
and grew up in an urban setting. So I want to now switch over to that Davis article. The case of Davis and the the case of the articles we're going to talk about here are very interesting, show a very interesting divide between how people who grew up with night and people who have not ever really interacted with night experience or have a sense of the activities of the evening, I guess. So in 1988, Davis, California adopted a dark sky ordinance, apparently with the explicit reasoning to protect stargazing. However, many residents believe that it's simply too dark. The streets are too dark. The bus stops are too dark, etc. So as a way to appease some of these complaints and provide assistance to the town's night economy, the city council decided to put three new decorative lighting options to popular vote. The goal was to balance tree health with the downtown's desire for ambience. I will note the city council did not consider lighting as having an effect on tree health. Instead, they're strictly speaking about having to prune or cut up trees to add lighting to the area. So Davis came up with three options. The first was to shoot decorative lasers up at a tree canopy. These are lights you usually see around Christmas in people's front yards or aimed at their houses, side of a house that kind of dances around overnight. That's up lighting and will require lighting ordinance adjustment. Stringing Edison bulbs between street lamps. And for those of you who are not familiar with Edison bulbs, they're often large, warm light bulbs that hang awkwardly off of a cable or stringing Edison bulbs, but wrapping them between trees and light poles, which would actually incur, in this case, damage to the tree. Now, maybe you guys are thinking it's honestly not that bad. These these options are not not terrible. So what's the catch? It, this There's an underlying theme here in this story, and I dug into a little more, and there's, there's, some ac- there's something else at play, and it's that Davis is a rare case where dark sky advocates actually kind of seem to get a taste of their own acrimony. In a previous CBS article discussing the lighting options, it mentions a constant refrain in alignment with what I'm going to say below that. It's just, it's just too dark. Take a cruise on the UC Davis subreddit, and you'll see outbursts of vile anger towards the limited levels of lighting. Anger points directly at the ordinance. For instance, when the chief of police of Davis gave an interview explaining why limited lighting actually reduces crime, one Redditor stated that MF say crime requires light. Yeah, because all these crimes happen during the day. In a January 6th article in UC Davis's student paper, California Aggie, students opined on how unsafe they felt due to what they framed as poorly lit streets. Now, I think there's one thing that everyone on the panel can probably agree on, and that's given the fact that you see a reversal of this very activity in nearly every context, whereby dark sky advocates would like fling the proverbial poo, right? Say against the oppressively unregulated, open-ended lighting communities that they they seem to exist in. In the same vein, there's a story out of Stephen H. England where a commuter is petitioning to have street lighting installed in a large borough park. The call is definitely out of fear and the belief that it will enhance safety. So the borough leaders, who are probably trying to prevent that from a cost end, are citing environmental constraints, specifically with regard to the ecology. So in these situations, and I really can't believe any of these areas are really dark, so to say, but rather they're not fully or directly lit. And last month we had, I had on Ashley Northcote of Astro Backyard. Ashley asserted maybe it's because people simply never use their night vision. I don't know if it's that as much as people aren't as comfortable with being in dimmer environments. 
What's your takeaway on these communities? Are, are these communities being stubborn and unresponsive to the needs of their communities? Should we have more lighting in communities that have taken a hard stance on protecting night? Well, it seems like the messaging and the education around it, uh, you know, there's like a there's like a gap between what good dark sky lightning lighting looks like and and what these people think this ordinance is going to entail or whatever. Because there's plenty of ways. What what they need to realize is dark sky advocates are not against lighting. We we do support lighting in a healthy way. And so I think it does come down a lot to that education piece of, look, if we put up lights like this, where it is a lower temperature color, then it's not doesn't have that blue light that's going to scatter everywhere and, and affect the, the sky glow. Then I think, you know, and, and if you start showing examples, you know, show, show an example of of what a well-lit street is like where you can see well and you can walk down the street and not trip over things. And that means that the light is pointed where it needs to be with the correct temperature bulb and not like, you know, the uplighting you mentioned on the tree, that doesn't sound very good to me for, you know, from a, from a dark sky perspective, you know, the edited symbols, mm-hmm. they aren't, they aren't shielded, but at least they are the the warmer temperature. So you do have, you do have that benefit, but yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to just showing examples and making them realize they aren't losing the light and there are healthy ways to do that. Are these communities being unreasonable? Are they just trying to justify a lack of spending trying to essentially try and skirt any kind of additional costs that they might need to put in or put forth because their community is asking for additional lighting? Is that what the the story is here? Yeah, I, w- I would just I would just say that I don't I don't think it's unreasonable to ask for healthy lighting or to ask for better lighting for safety. But again, it just it just comes down to you know what are the temperature bulbs that you're using, and uh, and let's let's make it so that it's a happy medium between mm-hmm. dark sky, uh, healthy lighting, and uh, being able to see where you're going at night. And I, I would just like to say that, you know, I mean, I, I think it would be really sad to see Davis go backwards since they've generally been considered uh, a success story for dark sky advocacy. I mean, there's also this, uh, there's a critical failure in this, this study, the survey that they give. They say, choose between these three lights and, and none of those three follow the the five principles of good lighting from from the IES or dark sky international. So, so right off the bat, you know, we're presenting three options that are not going to solve the problem, in my opinion. But they don't give you an option to say, I like the way things are now. And I think that's sort of a, a, a bad way to conduct a study because, you know, maybe some people have been vociferous about saying, I want more light. But what about everybody else who, who likes the way they are right now? And, and I think that's that's an important part of any any sort of public survey is, is to say, you know, I like the decisions, the sentiment of the town. I like that we have dark sky policy. And maybe there are some areas, you know, for these college students or or just people waiting for the bus that, that need improvement. But Shining light into space is is not going to solve that. Shining lasers into trees is not going to solve that. Right. Lauren, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the the like kind of safety question is a really interesting one because a lot of you know, it's it's I guess I have a question around how much of the feeling of being safer at night when there's light is sort of like a learned cultural feeling. I was talking about this in my PhD vibe the other day actually, like I used to live 
in a part of London that was really dark and I'd have to, I was working in a cafe and I'd have to go along the canal back home at like maybe 11 p.m. at night in East London. And it's like one of the darkest parts of London. And at first I found it really scary. And then I kind of realized like that because no one could see me and no one could see that I was a woman walking alone, I kind of felt safer. <laughs> like it was sort of this weird thing where like I wasn't visible as like, you know, and and it was so dark that I was not visible. But I mean, obviously that's not necessarily going to be realistic to have lighting levels <laughs> that low. So, but I think, yeah, the safety question is, you know, like I have read studies that say that it just increases your subjective sense of safety and not your actual kind of safety from sexual assault or violent attacks. But that's not to say subjective safety isn't important. I think that people's sense of feeling safe at night is also important. So yeah, I mean, I guess ideally these conversations happen in a way where people can kind of voice their concerns and come up with something that works for that community. And like every community's needs is going to be slightly different. But I think also people having a sense of like why they're trying to reduce light and like what reducing what like the, you know, what having more natural darkness means to them as a community. And again, that will be like different based on where you are and who's living there. So, you know, like what, what are the benefits for that community? Like, do, does it mean more opportunities to see the stars? Does it mean like, you know, is it the biodiversity value? Is it better sleep? Like what what are they actually doing it for? Like what are, what are they fighting for as a community? I think defining that will be sort of really crucial for the questions of kind of policy start to come up. Perhaps. Yeah. I think people get tripped up in that lighting and safety question. That's a tough one because largely it's an emotional issue, right? You, you have crimes that happen all time during the day, all like you have certain crimes that happen at night and some of them are more influenced by substances, right? Some of them are more influenced by a lack of like opportunity and, and it just because you have light doesn't, it's kind of like a variable, but the lighting gives you, gives you visibility to other things around you. And maybe that is what makes you feel a little safer because you're able to see stuff. So you think you can make, or you think you have the opportunity to make an informed decision. Yeah. I think with the safety, the big argument against using too bright light at night is that the shadows that become more dark. So if you have a really bright area, then your eyes are not adjusted to the darkness. So it's easier for an attacker or a robber, whatever, to to hide in the shadows and you won't even notice them because you've got your daylight eyes on because your eyes adjust um, to the darkness. And it, it it's not, your, your eyes aren't going to shift directly. It's like when you, mm-hmm. when you get hit in the face with a with a car coming towards you it takes your eyes a little while to adjust to that that darker that darker sense it's the same thing when you're walking through your home area or or your streets that are lit up if you turn your head towards the dark woods your eyes aren't going to adjust for several minutes um and and that's plenty of time for somebody to to jump you. So that's the huge argument against having too bright light lighting. And if you bring that that level down to more of that twenty seven hundred k lighting that's recommended by the International Dark Sky Association, then your light is your your eyes are adjusted closer to the night vision. Do you it's do you not think all the way there? But it's closer. <laughs> do you think we make too big a deal about crime at night? I feel like daytime crime. I mean. 
So they, there seems to be much more focus on fear at night, but we don't have the same fear during the day. And I don't understand why we don't have that same fear during the day, because these crimes that happen at night also happen during the day. And it's not that we have, you know, like people sit there and wait for it to turn dark and then come out of woods. I mean, that, that may happen, but someone could easily sit behind a car and come out of that, you know, like jump out of that car when you're walking by or something like that. Right. So it's the, the environmental, the timing aspect. Do you think make too big a deal of crime at night? Possibly, but I guess it goes back to what someone was saying about the perceived safety. You know, you, I think if you, people are, people are afraid of what they don't know or what they can't see. And so in daylight, you know, if you can see your surroundings, then you may at least feel more comfortable. Even if I don't know statistically, if, if more crimes happen at night or not, I don't have that information, but I think if you, if you can see your surroundings, then at least you feel more comfortable. I think that's what's going on there. And at night people are just afraid of the unknown. Okay. Well put. I think it's also yeah, a question of like population density on the street, potentially. I don't know. I think that's often that factors into, I guess my own experiences is like, there's just often less people around at night. So it's like, if you're sharing the road with one other person, they're sort of like following in your steps. You start to get a bit jittery. <laughs> like, I don't know if it, I don't know how much it has to do with like, but, but I think that, yeah, it's but interesting I mean, because like, Lauren, you would feel that way if you're under a street light walking and it was just you and then some skeevy person was coming your direction, right? Like the light yeah. be like the, the situation wouldn't be any different. If you can see them, yeah. you still feel very uncomfortable. Totally. Yeah. No, I think it is. I think it's, it's very much, I think the night definitely adds this perceived level of danger, which I'm not, I'm not sure how much that actually kind of tallies with the, the actual increasing danger. I think that, I think that probably that link is overstated for sure. Yeah, I guess like it's, but but the cultural association still remains. So that's still like a real thing that the dark sky movement needs to contend with. It's like the fact that people do feel safer when like the the perceived is still, I guess it's like, it doesn't change the fact that people feel that way. But I think that like that, you know, you can work with those kind of, yeah, like, you know, cult- culture changes and like you can work with that. So it's like, yeah, I guess I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it, it's not like we should just say, oh, there's no added danger at night. Actually, this is all invented. Studies show that, you know, like having more light doesn't make you safer. Therefore, you don't, you, you can't be worried about it. And, you know, we're going to dismiss all your concerns. Like, I think that it's important to acknowledge people's reactions, but then also kind of like that can be the starting point for a conversation around like, okay, so like what, you know, how do you do what does the night mean? Right. Yeah, how do you do good thing? What does the night mean to us? Like, where is that fear coming from? What are we actually afraid of? Like, it's it, if that's the beginning of a conversation, then that's, I think, leading somewhere really productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To move out this this little segment here, I just want to bring up two facts. And, and I think this kind of explains it. Stats from Pew Research in 2020 and the UK crime census in September of 2023 in both places we're at a 30 to 40 year low in crime. And even after a little bump in COVID, we're at an incredibly low crime moment in, in both countries. But in the US, the perceived amount of crime rose up by 31% from 2000 to 2020. So 40-some percent, 43 41%, whatever it was, believed that was really relatively crime-ridden country. And 
now do. So you have this this perception, and you know we're not going to go down the road of how we get there, but it, I think it kind of pairs with what we're talking about here. So let's move out of this little area and move on to something else. I want to wrap up some of the ordinances real quick, just by saying, here's a quick run through of communities that actually are putting in some ordinances. Quantana Hills, Somerset, England, Liberty Hills, Texas, Sheffield, Massachusetts. We have a, a half mile radius around Turner Farm Park Observatory in Great Falls. VA will now have a lighting ordinance that will take place. It doesn't really change anything for the time being, but down the line, hopefully things will change as new fixtures have to be put in. Chubuck, Idaho, Santa Cruz, California, Bisei Town, uh, Okayama in Japan, and Oxford, Canterbury, New Zealand. And I will list that four of those places have no tie to environmental or astronomical observations. Tim, you guys have been working hard to get two bills pushed through the Massachusetts government. And you guys have been doing this for a while, right? There have been numerous incarnations of these. Yeah. So Massachusetts is the only state in the Northeast without having passed light pollution legislation or, or lighting control legislation. So before my time, you know, I, I, we started this chapter, you know, I think five or six years ago. And, and I became involved with a lot of other really wonderful people who have been at this much, much longer than I, um, in, in some cases, decades. Uh, it's been very hard to, to pass a basic lighting bill. We even have buy-in from lighting industry. So whether it's the Lighting Designer Association or the Inter- um, Illuminating Engineering Society, the IES, which writes a lot of the rule books for lighting, it's bipartisan. We have like 30-something co-sponsors. And it's actually going to save municipalities money. So one of the the issues in Massachusetts, you know, we've been very forward thinking about converting our our high pressure sodium lights to more efficient LEDs, which is great, right? We want to cut our carbon consumption. That's that's excellent. We we support that. And then of course the state also subsidized smart controllers. But one of the things that happened in in that, you know, I think we're almost a, a 10 year push now. So I think somewhere around 75% of communities have now converted. Utilities are allowed to charge municipalities a base rate of 25 watts per fixture. The problem with that is that when you start using the smart controllers, you get way below 25 watts. So for example, that, you know, I'm sure we're going to dig into this a little bit deeper, but the town I live in is now using about 12.9 watts. So essentially every year we're subsidizing the utility companies and it disincentivizes a lot of communities from actually utilizing the smart controllers. So there was this opportunity, you know, the state basically paid for half or all of these smart controllers. We could lower electricity, we could lower our, our light pollution, and some communities didn't even bother dimming them because there was no financial incentive. Uh, so that's one of the things that the bill fixed. It'll also put a, uh, a cap on CCT. So it would be 3000K, which is in line with the American Medical Association. It does provide an exemption up to 4,000K if you can prove a safety reason. It also adheres to best practices about, you know, fully shielding your lighting fixture so there's no uplight. And the one thing that, that's important to, to understand, too, is it's very hard to regulate everything in a state. So what we chose to do is construct it so that it only deals with new lighting that is publicly paid for. So any municipal lighting, state lighting, town lighting, anything that the public is paying for with tax money, that would be regulated going forward. Uh, so in effect, it would, it would reduce energy consumption. It would reduce light pollution. It would reduce harmful blue light. As far as I know, if, we, if it passed, we'd be the first state to, to regulate uh, color temperature. But, it, but it's challenging. Uh, last session, uh, we got out of our committee. We were passed out favorably. And uh, we just ran out of time. 
And COVID similarly sort of disrupted any plans for passing legislation. We've gotten high marks. We had two hearings this this year. And in fact, some of our astronomy students at MIT testified and it was well well received. Hopefully we'll know in the next few weeks whether it's going to be passed out. So so there is a deadline, I think the first week in February, where we'll, we're, we'll find out whether it's going to move on to the next step. Well, good luck. That's that would be a great achievement if so. And hopefully my best to everyone who's worked on it. And I imagine quite a few folks have been involved. So Tim, I know you want to talk about your town, Pepperell, Massachusetts. Pepperell, yeah. Pepperell, yeah. Okay. So why don't you tell us about the work you've done in Pepperell? Yeah. So so Pepperell is is an interesting example. And it's, it's not because I, I happen to live there. It's because we were sort of a holdout in terms of, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago that, you know, somewhere around 70, 75% of communities in Massachusetts had already converted their streetlights. And we knew that, you know, of course, we, we want to cut our energy uh, we want to save our taxpayers, our residents' money. Uh, we want to be responsible and, and cut our carbon consumption. So we knew this was going to happen at some point. And and one thing we realized after seeing many, many bad examples of, of you know terrible, glary, very blue, poorly shielded streetlights that were operated at full intensity and made it actually more glary, so harder to see pedestrians, harder to see oncoming traffic, and so on. And and then of course higher sky glow, which which I care about at the observatory. So. What we decided to do was get really involved at in the early steps. Soon as we had heard, in fact, even before the the cold call came from from the design company to the town, we actually approached our, our planning board and our board of selectmen and our town administrator, and said, "Hey, if if you decide at some point you want to convert the that lady streetlights, we'd like to help you out. We'd like to work with you. We'd like to make sure that this project, if it's completed." The residents are going to be happy with because we have lots of anecdotes, lots of examples in the surrounding towns around us where these LEDs were put in, 4,000K high glare LEDs, and people are really unhappy with them. They, they actually observed that my visibility has been reduced. Yeah, here, okay, so. here we had a community um, in part of Philly that, that pretty much revolted against them. Yeah, and that's happened several times now throughout the United States, right? So early adopters, whether it's Los Angeles, Chicago, Manhattan, have actually gone back and conducted a second installation of LEDs. And we were sold, remember, in the, in the mid you know, 20 teens, that these LED fixtures would be around for a generation, that they would last 30 years, that they, you know, did not need maintenance. And then, of course, you know, many of these early ones burned out or they turned purple or just people were unhappy with them because they were too glary. So we took all that in account. And what we decided to do is, is instead of fighting with the town administration and, and fighting with the, you know, the, the design companies and sort of fighting on Facebook and so on, we said, why don't we all work together? And we put t- together a, a list of, I won't call them demands, but suggestions about how we could minimize light pollution. And, and this was the key, saving money for the town. And so we talked a lot about smart controllers. We talked a lot about preventing wasteful uplight and so on. And and so what we ended up doing was, one thing that we learned along the way was that the towns that were happy with their lighting had bothered to ask people, what do you want? And they actually conducted a survey or a demonstration. And that seemed particularly helpful in the, in the few towns in Massachusetts or other work, other places. Right. That's what that's what Larm had just mentioned, right? You know, build yeah. a responsive a setup where your streetlights are responsive to what the community needs are. Yeah. And and this was the really interesting part. So we we conducted this demonstration. We did not tell people what each of these lights were. We had five LEDs, different types of LEDs. And we actually stuck in the high-pressure sodium as a control. So we didn't tell people. They just assumed they were all new lighting. And they were all just lettered. So they didn't know what color temperature. They didn't know what brand. 
They just were allowed to drive around. They were, the, the demonstration was up for a few weeks. The first week was at 100% intensity, so matching the original high-pressure sodium. And the second week was down to 50% intensity. And what we found was that, so we had four 2700K and, and one 200K. So this was a brand new light that we didn't expect to even be able to include. At the time, we thought that the warmest we could get was 2700. And they threw in the 2200K, and it turns out, despite what we've always been told, that good lighting would cost more, it actually ended up being the cheapest option. So, so that, it was- that fixture, that the 2200K fixture, was the cheapest option. Because I've always heard that it's very expensive. It's two times... So yeah, you know. so we're told, and that, and that was not the case. That that was that was one interesting thing. And you know, at the end of the day, people chose what they chose. And and I think if it had been a little bit higher, maybe we still would have gone with it. But the fact was, this worked out beautifully, right? Because it was the cheapest option. People were rated it the highest in terms of visibility. So we conducted a public survey using you know a Google form that was easily accessible for people. And one, there's a few things we learned from this. One was that people prefer warmer colored lighting. So the two lights that they preferred in terms of color appearance was the 2200K and the high-pressure sodium, which are basically the same color. High-pressure sodium is just about 2200K. People did not like glare. So the fixtures that were sometimes more expensive and had more glare, people didn't like those, which is not surprising, right? No one wants to be blinded, uh, especially in a small town you know, of 11,000 people with, with flat population growth and very... Rural. We have lots of farms still. We have two federally designated, federally protected riverways. So you know, lots of interest in, in things like hunting and fishing and in agriculture here, and and the natural nighttime ambience. So people really value dark skies. So at the end of the day, people chose the twenty two hundred K without knowing what it was, and it was pretty clear people also preferred a dim streetlight. So as we've been told by by lighting professionals before that LED should really be, you know, somewhere around a, a third or so of the intensity of the original high-pressure sodium. We ended up coming up with a dimming scheme of 50% the first and last two hours of the night and down to 30% brightness the middle six or so hours of the night. And guess how many complaints we had? Say three. Zero. So even the police chief went on record saying that his nighttime officers can actually see better I apologize if you can hear my. No, that, that's great. <laughs> what kind of dog is it, Tim? It's a German Shepherd, and and oh. she found something outside. I used to yeah. have one. She, I, I had to put her down during COVID, but that's great Sorry to hear. Yeah, yeah. But uh, is that so? I mean, I, that that makes plenty of sense. That's what Tara was saying. Where you have, you don't have to go from the super bright and look into, you know, say a, a yard or something where you can't see anything for minutes, right? Exactly right, and and I think. Even if, even if you, you know, I took my astronomer hat off for a moment, I think it's really important to understand, even beyond just the general topics we've talked about, light pollution, by doing this dimming schedule, we saved 81% of our electricity. And that's much higher than the original, I think about 70% that the, the company originally quoted that they could do. So by utilizing wow. the smart controllers to their fullest ability, and then like I was saying, the police chief went on record saying, as far as they know, there is no increase in crime, no increase traffic accidents during these dimmed hours, dimmed hours, but there's really no downside. They were, they were happy with them. And they actually said, this is the funny thing about it. The police officers actually said, well, I can see better now because it's brighter. And when I tried <laughs> to explain to them when we met, well, it's definitely not brighter. It's down to 30% brightness. And they said, no, 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 I guarantee it's brighter. And the reason they're thinking that is because the contrast was better. They weren't hit with these glare bombs where they couldn't discern the deer or the skateboarder on the side of the road. They were actually able to see what's in the road better. Um, and because, 
And with that color, even though the, and I apologize for cutting you off there, Tim, the sodium pressure, because still, well, I don't speak to sodium pressure. They, they create a, a uniform color, right? Whereas when you have the warm LEDs, it creates like a, a single band of color. And a, that single band of color doesn't seem to saturate, I guess, is probably the, the better thought on that. I, to me, in my eyes, this is just anecdotal. It doesn't seem to saturate like the high-pressure sodium does. Yeah, so so one thing that's different about the high-pressure sodium is you have a filament that's hanging down below the bulb where you can actually see the thing that's glowing and it, and it, it causes glare, right, with the existing high-pressure sodium. The new, the, the 2200K Cooper fixtures that we, we purchased for the town were very well shielded and they had good optics. So, so the thing that's emitting photons, emitting light, is sort of buried in the fixture itself. So you can only really see the glowing part until you're maybe, you know, 30 degrees underneath the fixture itself. So, so the glare doesn't really hit you until you're right underneath if you happen to look up. Yeah. So, so all in all, I mean, it was, it was a good success. People were happy with it. And it, you know, my, my hope is that now we can take this example and get other people, other towns to take this on and and try to do the same thing because, well, if it's not more expensive, if people are happy with it and it reduced light pollution, you know, often the question is, well, well, did it actually do the thing I've been, I've been sort of blabbing about? Yes. So, our, our sky actually got about 20, 25% darker. So we actually went backward in time just by changing the streetlights. That's impressive. That is kudos to you guys. Good work on that. And you know, everyone's um, happy. Um, I'm happy. I can see the Milky Way still. <laughs> and, but I mean like the normal street users, normal drivers, anyone who, who walks around at night, they're, they're happy. And that's, I think that's a, the most important part. I think we get so lost in, and, you know, what's good and what's bad, how to make stuff super safe, like intersections super safe, that we forget that there's actually, we don't need to go to extremes. We can kind of, you know, be modest in our approach to it. And that, that little bit goes a long way. On your note to that, right, We that parallels with this story out of Boulder, where city of Boulder polled its residents, and 55% of them want it warm, 2,700 temperature lights, they wanted 29% favored 2200 temperature lights. There wasn't really much distinction for whether that lighting was on a, a highway, a major four-lane road, or just a neighborhood. They wanted the warm lights. And then similarly, a study out of North Carolina, students at the Outer Banks field site found that out of 500 people surveyed, that most were concerned or very concerned about artificial light at night at the Outer Banks and 90% agreed that Allen should be reduced. And of that 90%, 60% agreed strongly. I feel like it's overblown. you know. Like, and I live here in Philly. They, when they went and redid the LED lights, they put in initially 4,000. And the first thing they did was brighten up all of the commercial corridors, which are very, 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 very bright. But on all of the major thoroughfares, they put in 4,000 4, Kelvin lights. And then they tried to put that in neighborhoods and now everything is down in a much warmer, much more comfortable. Your eyes, you don't get a headache at when you're driving home at 11, or 11 PM, you know, because you, you're not, you're not putting, you're not getting that like daylight in your eye. It's much more enjoyable to, to move around. I find, but kudos to you, Tim. That's great. That's great work over there. And, and I think maybe if, you know, you, you can serve as a model for other for other people who are going out there to, to better the uh, lighting in their community. Cause oftentimes leaders don't know community communities don't know about this. Communities aren't aware. 
right? When you spoke, when you broached your community, what did they say? What was their response? Yeah. So I'm, I'm not going to lie. There was a healthy amount of skepticism. One, you know, often it's assumed that by doing the right thing environmentally is going to cost more. It's going to be a pain. It's going to create hardship. You're going to have to give something up. And there are situations like that, but I don't believe light pollution is one of those. I think it's one of those things that we can actually accomplish and that it doesn't mean you have to give up a, a significant thing. I, I think that you can do it. You can save energy. You can save carbon. You can save money. Whatever you care about, you can save the stars. But it's but it's a it's a very easily solvable problem. And I think you know we don't need new technology. We have the technology to solve it right now. So I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic. It's just a matter of, of will at this point. Yeah. Well, great work. Go take our last break right here, and then we'll have one more story coming up. I know you guys have uh, been hanging with us. And got just a very policy-heavy news month. We have one more piece of major news I want to go over, and we have a couple dozen nations I just want to talk about real fast. So for you at home, if you are listening for the first time, thank you. You can find everything about this show over at lightpollutionnews.com. So you can be sure to follow us on Instagram at light.pollution.news. Or if you're LinkedIn, why not follow us over at lightpollutionnews? And definitely check out our Reddit page, r slash news. On that page, you'll find interesting things that I just come across when building the show. For instance, courtesy of our past guest, Diane Turnshek, I put a link out there that can hold your hand through the often ambiguous process and possibly unnerving advocacy process of how to best interact with your public officials to obtain real positive change. It's a very helpful tool. If you're liking Light Pollution News, please Take a minute to rate or review the show, or better yet, suggest it to a friend or even an enemy. Hell, it works for me. Either one's great. Before we can move to the final segments, I'm going to give my guests a chance to plug themselves and discuss any new projects you're working on. So, Lauren, first up, where can people read your work or connect with you? And is there anything new that you'd like to talk about? So, my work is kind of all over the place, like online, <laughs> but the best way to access it is through my website laurencolley.cargo.site is my website so yeah my essays are up there they're kind of there's some about light and sort of you know particularly around kind of the like contemporary conversation around sort of circadian health I've written a lot about recently and then other essays kind of about sort of technology and the way people understand sort of nature more broadly yeah, I'm working on a book proposal at the moment, but I haven't got anything really to plug. So, yeah, I guess just stay in touch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep me in the loop when uh, when a book proposal comes through. That'll be great to hear about. Yeah. yeah. Tim, Tim, what's what's new on your agenda? What, what's coming up? Anything cool? Now well, that you have a minor, now that you have an asteroid named after you, right? Yeah, the, the, you know, the, the ironic thing about it is that once it was designated last year, I tried to observe it. And because the light pollution was, was bad and that, area of the sky that it was in, I, I have yet to actually see it. So I'm, I'm hopeful this year will be the year that I can actually see my asteroid. And beyond that, you know, we're, we're continuing to work on policy. We're, we're going to try to get this legislation done this year, you know, fingers crossed. And we're working on finalizing a, a new all-sky camera, a camera that can see 180 degrees in all directions that we're going to mount in, in different properties that, that MIT owns and, and beyond. Um, it's a really inexpensive camera, it's 3D printed, and that we could put everywhere to create some some awareness of what the sky looks like at night uh, if you can't get to an observatory. So it'll cool. be live broadcast at all times, Very cool. what the sky looks like. Yeah, I'd love to send a link when you guys have that up. That'll be really Absolutely. neat. That's a, that sounds fun. Tara, did not forget about you, because the next story 
I have a feeling that you're going to be able to weigh in heavily on. No, no pressure on that. All right. But, but what's going on? Do you have anything new coming down the pipe? Where can people find out about your production team and it's Moosey Productions? It is. I do have a website, mooseyproductions.com. I would say when I get back home from my travels, it's a huge revamp, but so it's probably not the best place to find things out right now. But darkskyfilm.com is the website for the the documentary we're talking about today. And all my contact information is there. Uh, I have three projects, actually, at various stages of production. Um, One is a documentary on uh, native plants. Another one is um, a documentary on um, John Muir and becoming your own advocate for um, nature, nature conservation. And then the last one is actually astronomy related. And it's on the, you may have heard of Stella Fane, and they celebrated 100 years of Stella Fane last year. And I'm working on a documentary about the Springfield Amateur Telescope Makers Club and the impact that they've had on astronomy and telescope making across the world. So those are my three projects that are coming up in various stages. And hopefully you'll start to see some of those out in the next year. Those are all very, very exciting projects. I'm, I'm stoked about, I'm stoked about all three. Like I remember I, I did the John Muir trail years ago and the Sierras hold a very special place in my heart because the Sierras are probably one of the most beautiful places, if not in the U.S. in the whole world. And and I've done different trips out there, and I, I I love the Sierras. And so I guess did you have to film? Were you did you have to film out there? <laughs> so this is interesting. I work with a retired National Park Service ranger who also on the side does personations of John Muir himself. Of course, and, of uh, course. <laughs> <laughs> and so he goes and speaks with groups. So what we did is I met up with him in, this might surprise you, but Montana in Glacier National Park, where John Muir spent several summers roaming through the, the mountains and doing his thing. So we actually did like a, the a filming. Pre-vamp? Is this like his, his training for the Sierras? <laughs> I'm not sure the exact timeline in all of this because John Muir was kind of everywhere. He was in Alaska and, you know, of course, the Sierras, Montana. He was even on the East Coast for some. But, yeah, we we chose because John Muir is so focused on the Redwoods and the Sierras and that area, we decided to pick somewhere that was lesser known about him. And so we used that as a, as our backdrop for filming. Very cool. I mean, it sounds sounds like a terrible life, Tara, and I'm very sad that you have to live it. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, this is our last major story of the night, and in Maine, it appears that a Canadian mining company, Wolfden Resources Corporation, purchased Pickett Mountain. For those of you familiar with the Appalachian Trail, this mountain sits north of Mount Katahdin. The estimated payout for the community in having a mineral mine at this mountain sits somewhere near $1.4 billion over the span of 10 to 15 years. The project would supposedly bring upwards of 300 middle-income paying jobs into that area. The conflict relies on the land use that's currently in place. Current zoning prevents mining at this location. Wolfton will have to petition for a rezoning and then request a mine permit. The dream of the mine has drawn ire from all angles of the environmental community and nearby Penobscot Nation, for whom you, Tara, you filmed the Defending the Dark documentary. And the nation has spent 30 years restoring the habitat of endangered Atlantic salmon and brook trout. 
So for our purposes, this this area specifically sits in the area designated as Katahdin Woods and Waters, the 2020 International Dark Sky Sanctuary. We saw something similar up in the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota, and whereby mining operation there appears to be on hold after Biden administration instituted a ban on mining for upwards of 20 years. And then a federal judge dismissed the corresponding lawsuit brought by the Twin Metals company that was trying to mine up in the Boundary Waters. As with all things, I believe that these are executive orders. So next administration, if the Trump administration came in, they could just reinstate everything and wipe the slate clean. I'm assuming both situations. These companies are playing for the long game. Now, when you were up there, the Penobscot Nation has really worked hard to kind of create, kind of protect their resources, right? Yeah, I can't speak uh, entirely on the Penobscot Nation, but I, I do know that that they have um, land in that area, and and uh, it is very important to them. They still use it for hunting and fishing and all that kind of stuff, and and ceremony and and whatnot. I don't know the specifics. I can't speak on that, but I was did I did some filming in the within the boundary of Katahdin Woods and Waters. National Monument, which is also the the International Dark Sky Sanctuary. And yeah, that whole region, it surrounds Katahdin, where I started my through hike 21 years ago. It's all wild land that's beautiful. And there's, you know, there's surrounding towns. I know there was some logging done in the area. I, I imagine there's still logging in the area. But what, I did like, read the- what, was that, what was the road called? Million Dollar Road or whatever? What was that road? Out by, mm-hmm. out by Baxter? Oh, I don't, yeah, I don't know what yeah. it's called. It's all, yeah, it all the, the, the paper mills. Yeah. yeah. When, when you start the through hike from the Northern terminus of Mount Katahdin, you immediately go through what's called the hundred mile wilderness. And this is generally the area that we're talking about. And so it's a hundred miles of, you don't see houses, you don't see roads. When I did it, maybe it's changed, but when I did it, there was only one road that went through and it was a gravel logging road. And I didn't, I didn't see one car for 10 days while I was out there. So just to be in that much wilderness on the East Coast, where generally it's populated. It's pretty dense. Having, yeah. yeah, having that protected is is huge. So, you know, I'm happy to hear that the Penobscot Nation has, has done some conservation around the, the salmon and, and wildlife in that area. Yeah. And, of course, any new mining activity is going to bring with it lights. And this would be another situation where that designation may be a threat so hopefully not hopefully hopefully at the very least the mining operations if they were to go in there they would be more respectful of their environmental surroundings yeah yeah definitely and there are you know there's two dark sky areas in that area there's the amc main woods international dark sky park and then there's the katahdin woods and waters national dark sky sanctuary and hopefully those two organizations, along with the Penobscot Nation, are able to give their input for any kind of mining operation, environmentally and dark sky related, um, because there is a lot of astrotourism. That's exactly where I was talking about. The astrotourism is, 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 is huge and, and brings a lot of money into that region specifically for that. So it's a balance. I mean, I know, I know minds are needed for certain things, but hopefully there's a discussion from organizations 
and locals in that community and they're able to work something out that's not going to be too environmentally impacted. Yeah, I hope so. Okay, lastly tonight, just some big news out of Fountain Hill, Arizona. Last month, ground was broken on the International Dark Sky Discovery Center. The new space will house a planetarium, an inspiration theater, an immersion exhibit hall, an exploration station, and a new 27.5-inch plane wave telescope. As the first of its kind facility looks to be a tourism beacon for astronomy, researchers, and budding STEM students filling a bit of an astro void in central Arizona. And I also want to congratulate Bulgerg, Denmark, for their recent Dark Sky designation and uh, Dark Sky Park. I want to thank you guys so much for hanging out. This Man, there's a lot of stuff we didn't get to, but that's great. That's good. That's why I like the conversation. So, so much good stuff in here tonight. Tara, Tim, Lauren, thank you so much. Really appreciate it talking to you guys, and uh, maybe we can have you guys on again sometime. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Thanks thank so you much. so much for, for inviting me, and I learned a lot from Tara and Lauren tonight. Thank you. Light Pollution News is recorded in the second to last Sunday of every month. And you can learn more about tonight's show simply by heading over to lightpollutionnews.com where we'll have all the links to today's show, including what our guests are working on. I'm your host, Bill McGinney, reminding you only to shine the light where it's needed. Hope you and yours have a great month. Bye.